This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. As it happened, uh, the last time I was here, it was Mother's Day a month ago, and today is Father's Day. And uh, it just, just reminded me of how we are all here because of our mothers and fathers. That's how we show up in these bodies, because of our mother and our father. I like to think about that. So this morning, I'd like to uh, touch on some reflections that, that have been coming to me lately. Um, as we move toward a sort of, sort of a threshold, this, uh, this opening, we're moving into a, a stepping into a different place in a certain way, certainly stepping into activities and perhaps habits of living we were used to before the pandemic. Perhaps that's coming up for some of us. Um, and maybe we have stepping out of things that we've changed or stepping further into things that we've changed because of this past year and three months of not being able to meet uh, in person. So many of our assumptions, thank you, Jewel. So many of our assumptions and our accustomed ways of moving through the world uh, have changed radically and even disappeared during our adventures and uneven encounters this past um, 15 months with this small potent virus, COVID-19, that has had uh, enormous consequences for us. So the reflections have kind of been around the themes of trust and knowing and not knowing. And I'd like to begin with a poem that, that just struck me as having a resonance with, with talking actually, with being here and being at Jikoji and giving a talk. So this poem is by Jifu. She's a um, 17th century Chan nun, Southern China, I believe. And she was the abbot of her monastery transmitted by some great Linji masters. And this poem, she wrote a number of poems, but it's one that's in, from a song of 12 hours of the day. So they had that kind of practice. This one is mid-morning. Mid-morning, the sixth hour, do not split up the great emptiness into this and that. Bells and clappers in the wind are very good at preaching, explaining everything in detail without saying a word. Well, today we're here to say some words and listen to some words. 
And hopefully we can hear also some bells, clappers, birds, and other things. Because language is a precious human gift for us, but it's a slippery one and a tricky one. What we hear from others, what we tell ourselves, uh, we can we can latch onto. We can really can really get behind believing that that's uh, the way things are. That that's uh, that's how it is. So this uh, kind of analogy came to me. It's what these things we we tell ourselves the language uh, is something like a recipe. We can read a recipe and we can have some understanding of how to work with it even, the transformations that, that can come about uh, at a certain level intellectually, or even from our experience in cooking when we use, apply heat or cold or just mix different things together. Uh, but but the recipe is not the dish. It's not the meal that nourishes us. What we know, what we know within us is deeply embodied. That's what our mother and father gave us. So that's like the food as we eat it and digest it and are sustained by it and let it move through. And the really uh, wonderful thing about all this is that it's all without conscious effort on our part, without thought. Once we know how to cook, once we know how to walk, once we know how to listen, know how to talk, um, but the digestion and the deep understanding is all, even the act of eating itself, and the act of knowing and the trust, it's all within us without conscious thought. And yet we come together to talk and to listen, to if I could you know, go out there and extend this metaphor to these to Dharma recipes, because we know that these things are also part of our practice. We trust that there's always more to take in uh, as, as we do with eating because that renews our energy. There's, there's always something that's new and can be revealed sometimes through language, sometimes not. In the words of the Dhammapada, we know that the Dharma, Buddha Dharma is an ancient inexhaustible law and it has many facets that that can occur to us or can or we can understand through hearing language from others. All the expressions of Dharma in different languages and cultures are vast and ever-changing. So that's why we have these uh, incredible sutras and words about Dharma, Buddha Dharma. So this is necessary and it's, there's no end to it also because it keeps going on and being reinvented 
by each of us as we carry it forth in our bodies and find expressions for it in language or in actions in many ways. Um, and there's no end to it because it is the creative nature of the cosmos, of the whole, of everything. It just keeps going on and manifesting, coming up, showing up in all these different ways. So, and we know uh, at some deep level, whether we've articulated it to ourselves or not, that, um, that our individual ways are in this great way, this great uh, um, adventure, this great um, journey we're on in our life. And we know we can also come to different junctures uh, on this way. We may come to some, some kind of river, either real or metaphoric, that seems impossible to cross. But then a word or a phrase can function like, uh, like a cairn or to point our way, or could resonate through ourselves, literally feel that as a bell and a clapper does. So we do this together. Um, this, this is the part that really struck me about coming back together after so significant a period of not being able to gather in person. We do it because we know that sharing Dharma in this way is good. And by dharma, I mean this inquiry into the profound mystery of being an embodied human being, whether that's in words uh, spoken in our heads or we hear, or sometimes wordless when we sit. And inquiry isn't a formal inquiry, but it's an openness to what this is, to what's arising for us now here in this moment, then the next moment and the next moment. What is coming through our embodied being through the, through this sight, this sound, this scent, this smell, this taste, this thought, this touch. And also embodied, we know what arises above these sense doors, the metacognitive, the awareness of awareness that we also have as a gift, being embodied as we are as humans. Perhaps other sentient beings have this too, and we haven't found a way to understand that yet. So that awareness of awareness, and then beyond or maybe under that, is the awareness of emptiness. Emptiness, what a big word, what is that? <laughs> it's a word we can really get attached to. Sometimes in Japanese, it's called kencho, sometimes a glimpse of one's own nature embodied, um, a different kind of awareness, sometimes satori, uh, also another kind of awareness. 
And both for me uh, are kind of like a complete reordering of one's relation to everything. And so all this, like eating, is just a natural function of being. And so we know it's good to come together, good because it's being together is a way that we can easily get in touch with the directness of being embodied to experience our interrelatedness with others. When we feel that, we, we get the direct mirroring, mirror, mirror neurons. Um, and also that, that helps us directly experiencing our own deep wholesomeness. So when we meet and practice together that way of the, there's an aliveness to that that's uh, present in a way that's not quite there when we practice alone or read Dharma books or listen to Dharma tapes. And I don't mean that it's not good to practice that way. I, I do that. It's good to practice in any way, but being together in practice is, uh, is really something very direct. It has a quality of energy, Sangha practice. Sometimes we can, uh, brings us, it brings us to see really clearly and experience great friendliness toward others, uh, compassion or empathy for and with others. And sometimes it brings up the opposite. Sangha practice brings up irritation or judgment, anger toward the group or individuals in the group or the teacher, teachers. So all these are kind of direct mirrorings that help us get more deeply into the great mystery. What causes these different responses to arise we see in Sangha, we could ask. What are the drivers of our feelings, our thoughts, our actions? What are the drivers of our very lives? So Buddha had a very pithy description that was that our delusions about the facts of life, impermanence, inseparability, otherwise sometimes known as not-self, and dis-ease, uneasy, otherwise known as suffering. So practicing together can help us see beyond those. Practicing alone can help us do that too. It's a balance that we each find. The Buddha, Buddha had to find it. Bodhidharma had to find it. How long? Alone? How long together? So this is the ground that we sit in. On and this is the ground we walk on. This is the path we're on. So these words and countless words, probably someone has counted them, I don't know, but these records of our ancestors aren't simply words, but a live expression of our deep nature, of our gifts of awareness and relationship 
all the suttas and sutras and commentaries and koans and chants and poetry. And these can really be helpful uh, to us because sometimes we wonder where we are on this path, this journey of openness to what's right before us. We have doubts, we distrust. Sometimes we need to trust our doubt. To just go past that voice that says, no, this isn't right. This is, this is the end. To see that there's always more. To see that we don't have to set things in opposition. So simply our awareness shines a light on what is without any separation whatsoever. Whatever words we wanna use, awareness or insight, enlightenment, wholeness, we use to label what really cannot be caught in words or fixed in words. It's, this awareness isn't an effect of a cause, like we sit down and then we follow a path and then everything unfolds in a certain way from there. We can do it. We have a template, we have, a, we have an, an equation, we have an algorithm. It's, it, it's an, an enlightening activity, it's, a, it's enlivening. And it happens in the midst of knowing and not knowing, for me anyway. Zazen puts us in the way of touching this gift not knowing it's not dependent on us, but it's always available to us. So other dharmas uh, have their ways. Every dharma tradition that sits and stills and opens to this awareness and mystery, they have their own ways. But our way is this way. This is the way that we're on. And we do what we can to be open and keep on this way. And trust is the gateway to this. Is all humans, and, and actually I think all, all life is, 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 is trusting. It's born into its embodiment, whether it's a tree or a butterfly or a human being, trust. No matter what our journey has been with our early conditioning, we were born trusting our mother and father. And we carry that with us underneath anything else that's ever happened to us. So keeping that trust uh, knowing that it's always there because we don't know what will happen any moment. Of course, that because that how, what does that mean? One way we could say we don't know what will happen when all the social activities open up. We don't know what variants COVID-19 will come up with. We don't know what the fires will do. We don't know what the earthquakes will do. We don't know when loved ones will become ill. We don't know when 
uh, our what what direction our society or other societies will move in. We don't know sometimes how we will react. So we quiet ourselves, we still ourselves to be open to the awareness, to trusting that we will see the way. Because that's where that openness and awareness uh, is allows us, what allows us to see what action to take, to see what to do. We can let this whole amazing flow of the world and our thoughts and events unfold without setting up oppositions, without clutching onto what's already passing or has passed. And this is where the action enlightening activity is possible. Unpremeditated, sure. And even our mistakes and blindnesses, our delusions and greed and anger, they come up too. Can we trust that these are gifts? This flow of awareness allows us choices. So I'd like to close with another of Jifu's hours from the Song of 12 Hours. This is late afternoon, the ninth hour. My understanding is still on this side of the river crossing. I chide myself that my cultivation practice is not stronger. When all goes well, I am happy. When it doesn't, I get angry. So thank you for your attention. And so I hope you'll join in this flow of words dialogue, discussion we're having today. Uh, that was a wonderful talk, Carolyn. This is Wendy. Can you hear me? Wendy. Yeah. I can hear you. Thank you. Um, I, and I really liked the um, opening metaphor with the menu and then eating the dish. So exploring that metaphor a little more, are we both cook and consumer? Are alternating? Um, what would you say? I would say yes. I mean, and even the distinction is, um, it, it's, so yes, for both. It's, it's just a metaphor of play with words. So we could take it further, definitely. And yet it just all happens when we, even if we don't cook, uh, but sometimes people who don't cook, uh, I know people, <laughs> they don't cook, but they love to read cookbooks because that, that delights them. <laughs> they like to eat. <laughs> they get their partner to do it or whatever. 
Right. So I, we're both. We're 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 all we're all one, and so the metaphor is. Thank you for pointing that out. That aspect of metaphor. The metaphor always tries to bring more in, but it also at the same time makes distinctions. What all language does, and yet we need it. We thrive on it, actually. Thank you. Oh, I, I um, thank you. <laughs> I had another thought, but it will wait. All right. I wanted to thank you for speaking. I'm sorry if I interrupted somebody. Um, I wanted to thank you for speaking. Yeah, I can't, uh, I can no longer cook without the risk of burning myself. Um, even though I was quite quite a good cook for a long time. Um, but I really appreciate what you're, what you were saying about, um, about just, uh, my mind just flew. Where the hell is it going? <laughs> anyway, Thank you for talking. I'll, uh, I might chime in later. Thank you, Ben. Um, Kathy? Thank you so much. One of the things that really lasted with me, the impression that I got, which was sort of Zen in a nutshell, was the recipe is not the meal, is not the food. And we study the recipe of Zen Buddhism a lot. And then we sit and partake of the nourishment of Sangha and the nourishment of Dharma. And that really, that really struck me as being very profound. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Kathy. Hi, Carolyn. It's Colin. Um, Colin. So what you mentioned about trust like resonated with me among other things that you said. Um, trust in oneself despite external voices or in internal critic critical voices. So I had a beautiful example of this with a friend of mine uh, Friday night. She's a She's uh, the partner of my mom and good friends for a few decades. And she has had a lot of uh, 
I don't know how to phrase it, psychological issues, like to the point of um, having to cover cameras and screens in her home, feeling that she's being watched, you know. And she told me, um, I don't remember exactly, but about 20 years ago or more, she decided to go to therapy and she kept at it. And she's in a much better place now. She's very happy. You know, happy meaning she's content within herself. And I, um, I remembered Suzuki Roshi's first summary in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It is wisdom that seeks wisdom. So I just told her that. I said, you know, because she told me it wasn't easy for her. Uh, you know, a lot of people go to therapy and they, they give up. She just felt that's her path and she didn't give it up. And I told her, you know, that that was the wisdom within you that was seeking that. And I told her this comes from Suzuki Roshi. And uh, she was so like, and whatever happens, which I tell myself too, whatever happens, whatever, whoever doubts you, whoever doubts your motivations, within the Sankha or outside the Sankha, inside yourself, to keep trust in the wisdom within you that guides you, even if you don't know your path exactly. Look, the way you put that poem, that beautiful poem you read us last time in first, uh, Floating Zendo from Antonio Machado, Wayfarer, there is no way. As you walk, you make the way. So anyway, I just want to share, was, your talk was so, so beautiful in so many ways, but I remember my friend and I want to share how people find their way. Maybe not necessarily in Zen, but we all have that in us. Thank you. Mike. You use the term metacognition, awareness of awareness. I'm unfamiliar with that term. Could you expand on on that awareness of awareness a little bit, please? Um, well, I don't know that I'm that familiar with it, but what I understand of it is that um, Let's see if I can put it in words from what I've read about it and heard about it from people who um, work with the Mind Life Institute, which um, psych psychologists and um, pra Dharma practitioners who look into how the mind works. So it's where we can 
sort of a correlative term or a somewhat associated term. All these terms, of course, are slippery. So the, the, um, the practitioners who are also PhDs in uh, neuroscience, um, such as John Dunn, you know, they come up with terms because they're scientists. So they say um, <laughs> um, meta, um, metacognition, the cognition of cognition. So it's a little like mindfulness, but of course that has many different definitions according to which, um, according to, you know, according to the common English definition that has come to us over centuries and then which uh, in Buddha Dharma, which tradition you practice in and which, uh, actually which teacher you listen to. But it, it's, an, it's uh, an awareness that is aware of, of what is going on without, uh, without identification in short, without what, so the terms I kind of use with latching onto it or clutching onto it. So we can see, for example, that we're angry and we, with metacognition or mindfulness, uh, which is the way the Buddha talks about it in the Satipatthana Sutta, we can see that we're angry um, or that we're excited. And, and we can see that just as a flow. We don't have to act on it. We're not immediately um, identifying with that as needing to take action or as an embodiment of ourselves, an identification with it. So in a way, it's a non-identity as I understand it. It's, a, it's maybe a kind of emptiness. I hadn't thought of that before, so this is a little speculation here, but um, I think that's probably enough expansion on that that you asked for, so thank you, Mike. Okay. Thanks for being here. It's uh, lovely to be together. Um, uh, something that, that caught my attention, some words you used was, you said it very softly as I remember, but you said a, a word or a phrase can serve as a cairn. And I love that. It's wonderful. It relates so nicely to the phrase I was introduced to of turning words words that can arrive at the right juncture in a person's awareness that help them, help guide them, or help them see a new way. And of course, a cairn is something that you run across as you're moving on a landscape that says, wait a minute, maybe don't keep going forward, but this marks that a place to turn, or maybe it marks that it's okay to keep going forward, but a cairn sometimes marks a turn. Um, so thank you that and that that really lit some things up and some some words arrived um, um i think the, another phrase that i heard was the wordless dharma of emptiness and what came up with that uh, was this was a reminder to me to be present to my awareness, to my pains and to my joy, to my insights, etc. 
and endeavor to not take these phenomena personally and at the same time assume a deep responsibility for how this particular being responds to and acts within the world. So I wonder if uh, you can, what happens when you hear that? So what happens is, uh, thank you. What happens is I, I really liked your last, um, you, you, you pointed to something in what you last said, your last phrase and sentence of, of not taking things personally, yet knowing, and uh, I don't know if you said assume, but uh, knowing the deep responsibility to, uh, that's, that's kind of like the, um, the paradox, the conundrum, like to 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 know uh, deeply and take responsibility without taking it personally. And also, I um, came up for me from your words was I hadn't heard that phrase turning word, but that's intriguing to me. I think I'll look it up. Um, and another thing, I just felt like sharing some of my words. Um, Further, uh, that image of uh, the Karen is very powerful for me. I, it, a line in a poem that I wrote at is, uh, words in the mind, stones in the crown. So, stones in a crown. So the, yes, there's a way that words drop in and sink in and sometimes we just you know, grab them and. So thank you. Tyson. So much, Carolyn, this talk. And you mentioned a couple of things uh, about Satori and Kensho. And on the spectrum of Zen, here in the West, especially maybe Jokoji and, and, and some of our different Sanghas, we've kind of abandoned some of the more rigorous Zen training that, you know, is still going on to some extent in Japan, but was, you know, really... Uh, you know, I just saw like a documentary about about the Rinzai training that, you know, went on in the 60s, the 50s, you know, so it was recent enough that they could do a video on it, but uh, not that long ago. But, you know, in which a, during a sashin, you know, no one sleeps, they have to sleep sitting up and uh, these incredible things that are asked of them to do from a physical standpoint of going in four times a day to speak with their teacher and you know about a koan obviously these are all koan based practices in the session but you can see how this psychological pressure cooker uh, 
you know, I was just wondering about, about your thoughts about Satori, the importance of, of, of that, the possibility of that being the same, given all of the things that happen in a Rinzai uh, training and the kind of easygoing training that we have here in the West, where not much is asked of us, you know, and um, once in a while we might do a session, but in general, it's very, very easygoing. Do, do you feel like the same level of Zen, uh, like you said about words, but anyway, perhaps you could weave together uh, a question and, and an answer from just what I've said so far. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you really for bringing up those terms. I was a little reluctant to even use them but <laughs> because in a way, I, they are just words to me. I don't have that kind of training and I'm not sure what they, um, you know, so I, I couldn't possibly, I don't have any of that experience of that kind of um, training. And they, and typically in like in say the, uh, a Christian Dharma path, words mean different things, whether your faith even means something different, whether you're, if you're a Catholic or Episcopalian or, so I, I think that that goes on in every, um, in every religious spiritual um, Dharma. So, so there's that part. It's um, kind of speculative, but intriguing. The part about what what part does the psychological pressure cooker play, and an arguments cases could be made for either way. I think, but um, but the and um, and I've read a little bit mostly in ancient. Uh, Linjai, uh, Rinzai, kind of, not really Rinzai, but the Chinese uh, um, tradition that got that got carried to Japan, and uh, so, um, so, I'm, I don't know that I would call our training kind of easygoing. I think what. Um, I think it depends on how seriously we take it. On the other hand, I, I will, uh, everything that I have gotten from uh, the people I know in this tradition and mostly from my own teacher, Angie, Angie um, is that, you know, this was, a, was a, a conscious effort by Suzuki Roshi who invited, um, who invited Kobenchino, Maizumi and others who he felt were receptive to this effort to break away from these rigid psychological pressure cookers. And certainly one could make the case that that's uh, even unhealthy and leads to a sort of blind um, guru and guru or well, the guru is a Tibetan term, but following of the Zen master. And certainly there are in the 20th century and even in, carried into the 21st, there are examples of, of that kind of uh, turning, you know, that kind of pressure that where 
the, the students become, uh, they become so confused that they, that they allow the masters to have power over them in very, very unhealthy ways. I, I, you know, the, there are lots of examples of that um, in 20th century American Buddhism, sometimes from uh, people who were from a Japanese Zen masters who came over or Tibetans, but from Americans as well. So I, um, there's a great responsibility, the word that Hogan pointed to, you know, that we each have. I personally am, am very grateful for me that I, um, that my way took me to this way, you know, that, that um, this path where there's uh, not such a, it's this way and do this. It's like more of the open way and see for yourself way, which are words in the early uh, tradition. So the Buddha said, go and see for yourself. Depend on yourselves when I'm gone. When I'm gone, it's up to you. As his, his uh, followers, disciples were lamenting because when he died, he knew he was gonna die. It's up to you. So I, I think that's all I have to offer on that. But thank you for bringing that in because sometimes we, even in, even in um, Soto Zen text, we read these words, what does this mean? You know, I remember asking about them. What does that mean? <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for that talk today. Um, it really did just feel perfect um, in, in many ways, um, especially in terms of um, <laughs> this funny feeling about what, uh, what is post-COVID for me personally, um, having you know, really kind of had my uh, concept shaken up a bit um, uh, and, and a lot of questioning about um, what, is, what is it to be in a conscious community and, um, and what, you know, what is it to have a teacher and, <laughs> and, um, and it, um, you know, I, I am, uh, this is a perfect example that, that, uh, that Tazen, do I say that right? Tazen, Tazen, <laughs> um, just a, sort of an imbalance. Um, and it was so lovely. Uh, yesterday I went to Angie's open house and that was the first time <laughs> I had been around people without masks on and um, it was so great. <laughs> and, um, and it was, it's been a long time since I've been around all y'all in person. And it just, it just makes me feel so lucky. Like, like Carolyn was saying that um, somehow I tumbled into this particular 
version of the practice and um, that, uh, you know, yeah, I agree that it's gentle, but I also have experienced that it's rigorous and, um, and uh, I just, you know, having <clears throat> heard yesterday some news about changes in leadership at um, Chikoji, I just want to also express that I'm really grateful for just the questioning that happens at the leadership level and um, just, just the commitment to stay dynamic and questioning and open to, uh, you know, you know, just open to um, how is it, how is it today in the practice and how, and I just am really, really grateful for the, for the leadership that is, is stepping up and um, because it makes me feel um, <laughs> like I can go into that rigor, I can go into the rigor of it without having to protect myself and um, and uh, yeah, and so I I really look forward to um, when I when I can get down there, just really um, being able to appreciate the the changes at Jikoji. And um, anyway, um, just want to say thanks for the community. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Karen. I, I just want to say thanks for the community too. <laughs> thanks. Well, I thank you all for your um, for your words. They're quite uh, quite beautiful to hear from you all, and even those who didn't say something. Uh, thank you for being here and. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.